Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast after one of the just most ridiculous, wild, unpredictable weekends of soccer I have ever seen in my <laughs> life. Truly the highest of highs and the lowest of lows <laughs> being experienced right now. Um, just, I mean, this season has had uh, already the past three weeks some incredible score lines thinking about liverpool four leeds three man city two leicester five but today we've had the two most prominent clubs in english football both losing by six goals we're gonna get five into goals. both of them five goals five goals yeah the two most prominent clubs in england both losing by five goals on the same day the first time this has ever happened in the history of english football it is Spurs 6, Manchester United 1, and Aston Villa 7, the defending champions, Liverpool 2. I don't even know where to begin here. It's just the world has gone crazy on the outside, and that craziness has trickled into the sport that we love. Caleb, let's start with with Liverpool. Let's start with Liverpool, because this is obviously, I think, going to be... It was the last game of the day, the last game of the weekend, and I think... The focus is going to be on the defending champions after what is their worst defeat since 1963. To put that into context, my dad is a Liverpool fan and he was a Liverpool fan growing up. That result happened before he was born. Uh, Truly a historically terrible day for the Reds. Caleb, what are they taking in the Premier League? What has happened? Like, is this is this because of... No fans? Is this just the pace of the game that we're at these days? What? I mean, how do you even... The champions have just lost 7-2 to the team that finished in 17th last season. Well, first of all, I'm Caleb Rhodes. Welcome to the show. Oh, my God. I completely forgot the intro. on match. I am joined by Caleb Rhodes. Hello. And Nathan Strauss. Hello, hello. Um, yeah, I am truly shell-shocked after this weekend of soccer i mean so many crazy results you have to talk about wolves one fulham nil of course sticking with the liverpool game i think we talked about how this aston villa team is probably better than 19th or 17th place finished where they were last year because of a lot of injuries and i think certainly in the past few weeks we've seen them buy very well Uh, i think ross barkley is an excellent signing, and I will continue. And I think the England setup will continue to watch the Barkley Grealish uh, combo. This was just a nuts game. I mean, Aston Villa just showed that they can sort of create chances. Obviously, they were playing a Liverpool team missing some key players um, due to COVID, especially City Omane, and then uh, Allison was also gone. I'm not really sure how this game happened. Like, it doesn't actually make sense because the gap, like, you see 7-2 scorelines sometimes, but you never see an underdog win with a 7-2 scoreline. And I think that's what makes this result sort of truly mind-boggling, is that you can't actually make sense of it. 
right? Like the probability of this happening must be like 0.001. Like this is truly a lightning in a bottle kind of thing. And so in terms of commentary, I don't even know what to give you. You can't really make sense of like a freak event like this. I don't know. Maybe that's a cop out, but that, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, it, it's very weird. And obviously I grew up as an Arsenal fan, no stranger to seeing my team on the losing side of these incredibly lopsided results. Obviously the 8-2 to Man United uh, is you know a sort of emblematic defeat. The difference between that and this game is that Arsenal weren't the defending champions and the entirety of today's game, I just kept waiting for Liverpool to switch into gear and they just never did. Even when they got that first goal back, they proceeded to immediately ship a goal at the other end. Even the player who I would say contributed the most for them on the day in Mo Salah was, had a pretty bad game. Like He just wasn't really involved. So I think that this game can be summed up either as a sort of random fluke or you can say their starting goalie, their new you know top tier center midfielder and their club captain are all out for this game. They have to deal with the recent COVID diagnosis of their star forward as well. So they're pretty much missing a key player from each of their, you know, lines of from each position, uh, if you will. They've also had to play, you know, two games in the previous six days, which admittedly, you know, maybe it's not any different from what Aston Villa had to do, but it still takes a toll when you're dealing with injuries like this. And then you have to say they've come up against a Villa side who are, in form. And so I definitely think it's a fluke. I don't think this this result ever happens again. Um, but at the same time, it was pretty interesting to watch just because I had never seen anything like it. I think you're right. But at the same time, like we shouldn't pretend like Tiago is like so central to their midfield yet because he's literally played, what, 45 minutes. Jota is obviously not Sadio Mane, but he's a perfectly, you know, Premier League quality attacker. And you know, Adrian is certainly no Allison, but he played several no, years for West certainly Ham. Certainly not Allison. But he played several years for West Ham. So it's and and you know, Liverpool's defense is, is far more than Allison. Like they have obviously Van Dyke and Joe Gomez is probably the least impressive member of that back line, but Robertson and Alexander Arnold as well have made up, you know, the best defensive back four in the Premier League for two or three years now. So once again, I don't think that that explains the full extent of how devastating a loss this was, even if they were all sort of factors that led to it. Um, so it, for me, it just remains like pretty much inexplicable. And the question will be, how does Liverpool move going forward? Because embarrassments like this, they cut deep, right? Like I, I speak as a fan of a team that lost 8-2 in a Champions League quarterfinal. Um, earlier this summer, but that was our last game of the year. Like, you can move on. This, this, this happened in the Premier League in, in game week three or four, right? Like, there's still a lot of soccer to play, and this is already shaping up to be a really rocky year. So Liverpool need to figure something out, um, or at least respond very well in the next game. I'm, I'm curious, Nick. Just like, I know this is tough for you, but give us an insight about like where you think the core failure was in this game. And sort of your your sense of that, maybe. I agree with with Nathan when there was a lot of factors coming into this game that I think impacted Liverpool's performance on the pitch. I certainly think that seeing two of your teammates go down with the coronavirus and not 
really knowing what the future of the team is going to be going forward in terms of positive tests has to be a huge distraction throughout this week internally. Um, and I think, you know, I hope everyone else in the Liverpool squad is okay in that regard going forward. But you guys know this. I don't come on this podcast and, and make a lot of excuses uh, for Liverpool. I think when they're bad, I, I fully recognize when they're bad. And, and this was historically bad today. And the thing is, it is a fluky scoreline. The 7-2 scoreline is definitely um, very punishing. And Aston Villa really capitalized on almost every single one of their opportunities today. There are a few. They, you could even have said that it could have been a lot worse. It could have been 9, 10, 11 if Ross Barkley, Ollie Watkins, and Grealish had finished off some of their you know, more difficult chances. Adrian set the tempo really early for this game um, with that terrible pass coming out of the back. I mean, it is totally shocking, but in a way, some of the goals that we conceded aren't shocking at all. Teams have been getting behind this high line that Liverpool have been dominating with for the past year and a half really easily at the start of the season. You know, you think about the Timo Werner chance in the Chelsea game. I think about uh, Alexander Lacazette on Monday for Arsenal, you know, the chance that he probably should have buried to make it 2-2. There are deficiencies that we have said have been creeping into their game ever since, you know, the Watford result and ever since they clinched the title. And, you know, they had that horrendous game away to Manchester City and that horrendous game away to Arsenal. Uh, where their mistakes really damn them in the end, and they haven't cleaned those up. You know, they didn't clean those up against Leeds. They were lucky not to get punished against Chelsea at times, and they were also lucky not to get punished against Arsenal in a game in which, you know, a lot of the midfield engine worked really well. Today, they looked complacent. Everyone looked complacent from minute one. And I think Jurgen Klopp has said that this season they want to attack the title. The past is the past. We won, we won the Premier League last season. You know, this is a new season. This is a new challenge. And I feel like, yes, he can come out and say all that stuff in the media. But clearly that hasn't been communicated to the squad. The squad is still playing like they're 20, 30 points ahead of the pack. And the fact is the league in a short five weeks of this transfer window, you know, in this abbreviated break between seasons has gotten so much better. We look at the additions that Spurs have made, and we'll, go, we'll get on to the Spurs' result today because it was brilliant. We look at you know the additions that even teams like you know Aston Villa have made. They've made some marquee signings. They brought in a 30 million pound striker. They brought in midfield additions, you know, Bertrand Traore, who is a capable attacker. Teams below us are getting better, and Liverpool need to find a way to not even just organize themselves because organizing yourself after you lose 7-2 is not going to propel you to title. They need to find a way. I mean, I just don't even know. Recharge. They certainly need to stop playing this high line because I think the high line's totally gotten figured out in the first four weeks of this season. I think this defense clearly doesn't trust Adrian. And why would you? He's cost you today. He cost you a place in the Champions League quarterfinal way back in February. The high line works partly because we have one of the best goalkeepers in the world in Allison. Uh, as the last man back. And Adrian, like Caleb said, is no Allison. You, you pick up the pieces and you move on. But our next game is against the team that's at the top of the table in Everton. They're going to need to figure things out really quickly. Yeah, unfortunately, you do have now two weeks for Klopp to sort of lick his wounds. And, and Allison is out yeah. for a long time, by the way. Klopp confirmed that after the game. He said that Allison is going to be out for around six weeks. It might even be more than that. So maybe it's a case of, you know, Liverpool really need to go out tomorrow you know transfer deadline day 
and go and sign a capable keeper who fits more with what they want to do or even yeah. go out and sign a center back to compete for a place because I think like Nathan said way back on our Premier League preview podcast the absence of Lovren means that there's one less center back to compete for these places and a lack of competition leads to complacency as we've seen with David De Gea last season and plenty of other players as well sorry to interrupt no, no, no. I think so. There are a couple points that I want to get to. First of all, just going back to the idea that this win was maybe a little bit more fluky than the scoreline would suggest. Looking at the expected goals data, Aston Villa were only 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 won this sort of XG battle 3.08 to 1.66. So given all of the deflections and sort of the positions from which Villa were taking their shots, it's not as if they were, you know, playing the way Bayern did against Barcelona where they were getting basically tap-ins you know from the six-yard box there was an element even without the deflections Liverpool still lose this game 4-2 no 100% I'm just saying there's a big difference between losing to Villa 4-2 and losing to Villa 7-2 um just because you just don't ship more than four or five you just don't ship more than four goals if you're a championship team um but that was just sort of an, an aside to demonstrate you know some of the numbers behind the game um, I think we talked about it a little bit off the pod as well, but the lack of competition for places at the center back spot. And I think in general in the squad itself might've contributed to this too. And it's sort of a byproduct of having such an established first team where every single player is world-class where it's very hard to sign a player and convince them that they're going to be, you know, third or fourth choice, unless you're someone like Joel Matip who came in on a free and was expected to compete for like that second, third center back spot. It's hard to find a player that is both good enough to play, um, but also willing to accept a sort of reduced role in exchange for this transfer. I think that goes to the goalkeeper position as well. Signing on as a backup goalie is a very, very thankless task. When you think about, you know, someone like Adrian, who was terrible today, was very poor last year, but at the same time had a couple of good games at the beginning of last season when Allison was out as well. It's hard to sign a player who's good enough to be your backup, but not so good that they'd be starting elsewhere. And clearly, I think Liverpool need to prioritize a center back right now. You know, they were they they drew nil nil with Arsenal, um, playing forty five minutes of Virgil Van D- or sixty minutes of Virgil Van Dyke rather. Um, but there's no reason that a team like Liverpool, with its pedigree, should be resorted to playing one of the world's best center backs in these sort of meaningless midweek games. If it's any consolation, uh, they were not the only. They, along with United and now and Leicester as well, pardon me, and City as well, have now all faced these, you know, pretty shocking results. Um, and we'll get to the United one in just a minute. But the Merseyside Derby is going to be a huge test for them to see how fast they can recover from this loss. Yeah, listen, this is a wake up call, absolutely. And I think for about a year and a half now, Liverpool have been narrowly avoiding these huge wake-up call moments, the likes of which Barcelona have had over the summer with the Champions League, you know, the likes of which Manchester City have had against Leicester in the past week. I think for 18 to 24 months, Liverpool have been the cream of the crop in England. And now we're just starting to see everyone else, not slowly, fast, like in a rapid, you know, in almost five weeks' time, catch up with them. And this is where I think Jurgen Klopp is in a bit of a unique position because I think he's so used to chasing glory, you know, fighting from underneath Bayern, fighting from underneath Man City, Chelsea when he got here. I think he's so used to fighting from underneath that motivating a team of such immense quality that we know that Liverpool has 
And Liverpool, you know, they're still the most complete 11, I would say, in the country. But this is an entirely new challenge for them. How do you motivate yourself to keep going when everyone else is slowly catching up to you? When you're fighting from the top, it's very different from fighting as an underdog. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I think we should probably transition from this Liverpool defeat to the Man U Tottenham game. But before we do, I think I just want to pose a question that we should sort of keep returning to throughout this podcast, which is, you know, Nathan and I both thought that Liverpool weren't going to win the title this year. And after this weekend, we've seen some pretty crazy results. Um, And so I want us to just keep thinking about who we think is sort of the ascendant team right now, or whether for the first time in many years, it's truly unclear who has the edge going forward. Um, But with that said, Nathan, why don't you sort of give us the lowdown on Spurs' beatdown of Manchester United away? Yeah, I mean, this game was pretty fun to watch. Um, Even as someone who passionately dislikes Spurs, it, it sort of got off on the wrong foot because, you know, within the first minute, United had had already drawn a penalty. And at least I certainly was thinking, oh, well, you know, here we go again. You know, within the next six minutes, uh, Ndombele scored a sort of scrappy goal and then Son scored. But I think the real turning point of this game was in the 28th minute when Anthony Martial was sent off um, after a sort of coming together um, between him and Eric Lamella. Lamella sort of got away with one. He elbowed him and Lamella came back and hit him in the face or pardon me, Martial came back and just hit him in the face, uh, which you just cannot do. In, you know, in the 10 minutes following that red card, Harry Kane scored and then Son scored again. Spurs went into the half up 4-1 and they just sort of continued to pile it on. Eric Bialy could have been sent off. Luke Shaw could have been sent off as well for United. It was a very, very sloppy performance. Their back four looked legitimately championship quality. David De Gea was poor. Paul Pogba had another stinker. Meanwhile, Spurs continued their goal-scoring ways. They put up seven at midweek against an Israeli team in Europa League qualifying. They seem to have hit their stride really, really well. Juan uh, Minson had a, had a great game. Harry Kane is scoring goals right now. And Jose Mourinho is getting, getting, reaping the rewards of trusting Musa Sissoko, who I thought was probably you know one of the best players on the pitch today. So very, very shocking result if you're United. And it really highlights, I think, the disappointment that a lot of United fans feel at the lack of spending that they have done this summer. What's what what's the project at United? For real. Like, what is the I'm not saying this just because I'm like, you know, it's been a bad day for me and it has. And as these two can tell you, I was absolutely loving reveling in Spurs winning this game 6-1 until it all came crashing down again (laughs) for me from a Liverpool perspective. But this game, I think, just underlines the fact that United just aren't an ambitious team mentally on the pitch, executively in the boardroom. I just, it was so baffling to me. Like, yes, they they got off on the the front foot in this game, right? And we're so accustomed to them getting a little bit of support from the referees. But I think all in all, you know, they're a very quick team and they can hit you on the break. And that's something we know they're good at. But Harry Maguire, this is the most expensive defender of all time and we've seen him wrestle down his own i don't know if harry Maguire knows that you can't <laughs> win penalties inside your own 
inside your own box, but someone should let him know because <laughs> because my man, like uh, Luke Shaw, is not an Albanian man who you need to like fend off in the streets of Mykonos. Uh, in fact, he's your own teammate. <laughs> Dude, Sulskjar is actually going to send Maguire back to Greece to be put in jail just yeah, so he has, a, <laughs> he has a reason not to have to select him. Right, like he'll just remove that pressure. Breaking news, Manchester United signs extradition treaty with, with, with the EU. <laughs> just, it's just like... We've known, like, everyone, all Man United fans been pointing the finger at Victor Lindelof, and clearly he's not the problem. The problem is United have serious deficiencies at the back, and they have serious deficiencies in leadership and mentality. Like, look when Pogba, Pogba gives up that silly penalty in the second half, and he gets up and he just starts cracking up and goes about his day. Like, like you're 5-1 down, 6-1 down, you know, show a little, you know, humility is something to show that you actually care about this project and the fact that let's not lie to ourselves they have backed Ole somewhat with money you know they've gone out and signed Bruno Fernandes, Juan Bissaka, Maguire but there's no look at the state of United squad it's like all these random squad players like the two people who they brought on today to stop the bleeding were Scott McTominay and Fred <laughs> and even that didn't end end up working out, and they've spent months publicly chasing Jaden Sancho, only to get rebuked in the end. And now, in order to make up for their deficiencies in the market, they're signing a 33 year old Edinson Cavani and Alex Tellez, who's on the final year of his contract at Porto. And you know, Tellez might be a step up from Luke Shaw, but he's not going to prevent <laughs> another collapse like this from United because this wasn't a tactics thing and maybe it was you know Son isolated Maguire for large portions early in the game and he reaped the benefits of Maguire just falling all over himself but Nathan this is just like it's it's endemic of what United have become as a club in my opinion yeah and I, I hate to you know make this about my team because I know we're not discussing Arsenal explicitly but you look at what happened when Arsenal were down 3-1 to Liverpool for Large or 2-1 to Liverpool for large portions of the game. They're, they never stopped fighting. Even when they knew that they were getting played off the park, they did not stop fighting. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that there's a very, very clear project. You look at the talent that United has and their sort of position in the transfer market and in the, the historical stratosphere that they're in. Um, there's no reason why a team like United should ever perform the way they did today. They had, you know, multiple players who were amongst the record transfers for their positions. Juan Bissaka was obviously an incredibly expensive transfer that turned out pretty well, whereas Maguire was one that turned out less well. And they're trying to replace Luke Shaw with with Alex Tellis, who there's a reason he's 27 and playing in Portugal, right? Like, there's a reason that he couldn't make it in La Liga and that no one picked him up yet. He's an attacking fullback, and they don't need an attacking fullback. They need someone who can defend, right? They're not. They're not. They're not playing a five-three-two. They need. They need actual fullbacks. They need an actual center back. And the fact that they even spent most of this transfer window targeting Jaden Sancho makes no sense to me. When clearly their team would do so much better 
with structural reinforcements at the center back position. It reinforces our belief. I think that this is a shared belief from all three of us going back to Solskjaer's initial appointment that he is clearly out of his depth and lacks pretty much all of the nuance that it takes to be a manager of a big six team. And it makes me think that it really was just the penalties last year that kept that got United to their to their final position. Um, I see very, very little chance of them making it out of their Champions League group with play like this, right? Like PSG will tear this team to, to shreds. Yeah, this team is very disappointing. And I agree. I think it's just I look at this team and there's not one player who I view as an actual leader. Right. I think I think the club has wanted for what, like three or four years now for Pogba to show that he cares and that he cares enough to kind of like put in the extra energy of lifting up the players around him. But clearly he's just not a leader. Right. Like clearly he thrives best when he is very, very talented, but doesn't have to have the burden of being like the rallying player for his team. So back when he was at Juventus way back when he could rely on the experience and the sort of, you know, care of Pirlo, Marchisio, et cetera, Chiellini. I mean, like Juventus are probably like in contrast to Man U, a team that had like too much leadership or, or so much leadership that they, they had leadership coming out of, out of everything, man. <laughs> right. Um, but clearly... Pogba played no part in that at all. And he has continued to play no part in that at Manchester United. And so they need to switch things up in their next game, right? Like, I don't know if that's benching Pogba and Matic. I don't know if that's, you know, playing Van de Beek in whatever position they told him he would be playing when they signed him. Presumably when they were making the pitch to him, they weren't like, and we're going to bench you while we lose to Spurs 6-1. And Donny Van de Beek's agent is even turning on United. He came out publicly and said he doesn't understand why Van de Beek is on the bench. And like, that's part of the reason why they've been poor recently. So when a new player's agent is already attacking the club publicly, you know there's some serious structural issues going on internally over there. Yeah, and that's also, a little weird. Can I, just say, can I just say too that it's so funny to me that like after seeing all these problems after getting rebuffed by Jaden Sancho, they're like, you know who we need? Usmane Dembele on loan. <laughs> Talk about a player who's not going to add a lot in terms of leadership to that team. Oh my word. I don't think that's actually going to happen, but um, it, it's a bad look that like their solution to these problems is to look for like another attacking player when clearly the issue is like a lack of structure in the defense and the defensive midfield area. Caleb, they just want names. They just want names. They want names that'll, you know, turn the dial for them on social media numbers, engagement numbers, stuff like that. Names that'll keep them in the echelon of being considered a big club. But that's because United aren't a football team anymore. They're a business. That's all they care about. They care about, you know, profiting off of things like sponsorship deals, endorsement deals, you know, partnerships and food, real estate, marketing, cars, all of the stuff that we see Manchester United's name being plastered on watches, you know, all of that stuff. But it's because ever since Fer and Ferguson tried to shield the club from the beginning of the Glazer ownership a bit uh, in his last couple of seasons, which is why you saw him splash the cash more than ever before on players like Robin Van Persie to set them up, you know, for a few more years of success after he was gone. But unfortunately that, you know, that didn't take, uh, take shape. This put the underline under the fact that Ed Woodward 
and the Manchester United board. Like, if also, if Woodward wanted to go out and get a world-class manager, they could have, right? And I think they know that Ole isn't the pedigree of manager that should be running this club. Ancelotti was available. Maurizio Pochettino was and is available. Oh, dude, if Pochettino United, would love to get its claws in this team. If United wanted to become a top club again, they fully have the resources to do it. But United are a business. They're not a football club. Yeah, and wow. also, going back to the Cavani signing real quick, if a 28-year-old Radamel Falcao, who was injury-prone and coming off of you know a couple of consecutive career years, couldn't cut it at United, I see no reason why a 33-going-on-34-year-old Edinson Cavani, who spent the last half a decade meandering around on the farmer's pitches of Ligue 1, is going to do much better and for them. And super injury-prone as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean... It's a baffling move for me. And while I think they were able to sort of carve some success out of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who's another striker who fit a similar age profile, it they don't need a striker. They've got Igalo as their backup striker. They can play Martial or Rashard or Greenwood up top too. It just like, again, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and all of the United fans, I think, are just justifiably irritated at uh edward word so let's move on we're gonna talk about spurs though because oh my god this team is looking like the team that Mourinho was talking about developing in that all or nothing documentary things are finally starting to take shape over there yeah i agree this is a very very impressive result from spurs and it's a spurs team that i don't think this is the best spurs team that could be fielded right I think that Alderweireld is still better than Sanchez or Dyer. Um, they had a lot of talent on the bench, Deli Ali, Lucas Moura, and we have to imagine that if he sticks with a 4-3-3, the future of it will be Son, Kane, and Gareth Bale, um, which I think, Nick, you were telling me this earlier, you think that would be a potentially terrifying uh, front line. I think it's good to see Tengi and Dombele, you know, getting some minutes. Obviously, he you know, benefited from, as you mentioned, Harry Maguire, just throwing Luke Shaw to the ground. Um, and <laughs> but he looks really good in Domblay. He looks like he's he's taken all of the criticism that Mourinho levied in him in the first, you know, six months of his tenure, and he's looked like he's come out a better player from that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this team had a few hiccups earlier this year, but they've been scoring goals over the past few weeks, and I think they're going to continue to score goals, which... Up is down, down is up in the Premier League right now means that Spurs might be uh, finishing a little higher than the eighth place that Nathan predicted. I still think they finish, you know, in eighth or seventh. I don't think that they're, I think they're just too, they're just too streaky to maintain this sort of form. Um, But they did look pretty good today. Uh, I just happened to notice, though, going back to something that we said a few minutes ago, Di Marzo and Fabrizio Romano are both expecting. Dembélé to join United tomorrow as of now with Depay oh. heading to Barcelona on oh, a that's permanent, so bad on a permanent Dude, deal for 25 oh million God. plus add-ons. <laughs> I, I only mention this because it's we were just talking about it and it's like the t- the first thing on Twitter. Um but yeah, I I Spurs it, I I'm a little less I'm a little more sanguine about Gareth Bale's potential impact on this team. As in, I think it's incredibly variable. Like, I just, I'm not convinced on... Yeah, I think it is all dependent on how fit he can stay as well. Right. Um, But again, I mean, 
they're a fun team to watch when they're playing right now. Lucas Mora and Hyman Son are very fun players to watch on the wing. And when Harry Kane is fit, we see we know how much damage he can do to opposing back lines, especially when the opposing back lines are of the quality or lack thereof of United's. So I still think this team has weaknesses. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sold on Serge Aurier, although he did play really well today. And I'm not entirely sold on their the dynamism of their central midfield. Clearly, they're a team that will be motivated by this result and they're a team that can compete. I'm just not entirely sure how well they're going to do when it comes down to the nitty gritty uh, you know, back and forth of their Europa League campaign. But I'm, I I hope they don't make me say that I was wrong. I think they are. I think they're going to finish in a European place and they might even finish in the top four because this team is improving and they're improving very quickly. And on that streakiness note, and I would agree, I think they've also been guilty of a bit of inconsistency, especially at the very beginning of this season. But they battered Southampton. They battered Newcastle. They should have won that game. Then they should have scored more than one goal. But they were robbed because of that Eric Dyer handball controversy. They put in an incredibly impressive performance against Chelsea with their B squad, essentially, uh, on Tuesday. And then two days later, they battered a team like they should have been battering them 7-2, to ironically, on the anniversary of their own 7-2 loss uh, to Bayern Munich in the Europa League qualifier. And then today they go and batter United. And I think it's really interesting to see like the dichotomy of, you know, different strategical approaches in the Premier League right now and, and what certain clubs are lacking structurally. And when it comes to the transfer market and when it comes to your approaches to play on the field, we think about, you know, Mikel Arteta has a really great approach and system that he wants to employ at Arsenal, but he hasn't gotten the backing in the transfer market in order to improve the squad. We look at Manchester United who are going to have the backing to improve you know, their personnel on the pitch, but have no system or you know, tactical identity going forward. Spurs have both. Daniel Levy has pulled out the checkbook for Jose Mourinho, and Jose Mourinho is getting the personnel in to implement his style on the field. Carlos Vinicius still is yet to come into this team. He's going to be a great... He is certainly not uh, Fernando Llorente as a backup striker. Um, I think it'll provide Harry Kane with some decent competition or at least an, a great alternative coming off the bench. Gareth Bale, I think Caleb and I discussed this when we were watching the first 15 minutes of this game over Zoom, but I think this this guy, just in the way that he is admiring this team from the stands in every single game, looks like he's motivated and wants to be on the pitch. And a motivated Gareth Bale should terrify everyone. I certainly would not want Liverpool to play that high line against Son, Kane, and Bale. And I think Harry Kane is really interesting because Jose Mourinho has sort of converted him into, for lack of a better word, the quarterback of this team. He's been an incredibly creative player in his passing, in his vision, in his awareness. And I think that's been on display for the past couple of weeks. So all contingent on whether or not Spurs can stay fit. But I think we are seeing the fruits of the Jose Mourinho project really start to take root. And Spurs are going to be a threat this season. Nathan, do you want to drop the breaking news on us? Yeah, we have some breaking news from uh, Manchester United. And if you're a Manchester United fan, you might want to close your ears for this one. So uh, in thinking about sort of Manchester United's deadline day dealings of the past, of course, there's the notorious fax incident between them and Real Madrid where 
David De Gea was set to join them for upwards of a hundred million uh, pounds, I believe. And instead that transfer fell through due to a late fax that was never received. Well, guess what? It's happened again. Allegedly, the private plane that took Alex Tellis to Manchester was having problems in the air and it returned to Porto. Of course, it's good that they, you know, recognize that there could have been an issue and that they decided to do the right thing and, and ground the flight. But it does just seem to be very emblematic of where their club is at right now. Well, I think this I think they'll still end up signing him because they have one more day to fly this man over to Old Trafford and get the deal done. But certainly a... Uh, you know, a hilarious footnote for in a, in a bad day for Manchester United. I think we can move on oh, and sure. I'll give you guys a choice. I think there are probably three more results we should probably touch on. Leeds, Man City, Chelsea, Palace, and then, of course, league leading Everton versus Brighton. And I will leave it to you guys to pick where we go next. I say Everton, Everton. Nick, if that's not too painful for you. They're not going to be too painful for me to talk about them because I think they've been stunning once again. They absolutely battered Brighton. Uh, Brighton were a team that gave Manchester United a lot of trouble. They once again look like the real deal, and it looks like I was totally wrong in <laughs> my, my preseason <laughs> prediction in terms of them finishing you know, in around 7th or 8th. I think Ancelotti... Um, is a marvelous coach when he has the players to execute this brilliant 4-3-3, which looks incredibly balanced. Uh, James Rodriguez. James Rodriguez, you want to talk about quarterbacks? He looks like a mobile quarterback for this team. He's popping up everywhere on the pitch. And the big man, DCL, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, the most dangerous man from inside the box in world football right now. And I think he can keep up this finishing. And the thing, the really interesting thing about, about DCL, about Calvert-Lewin, is that he has had years to develop his awareness and his skills in a variety of, of positions for Everton. You know, Ronald Koeman even put him out at right wing back. So this guy has an incredibly high soccer IQ and finishing was the last thing that he needed to work on in order to become a really quality Premier League striker. And he looks like he's totally done that. So I think Calvert-Lewin is here to stay. And I think Everton are also here to stay as well. Yeah, my man has nine goals in six games so far, including two hat-tricks, I believe. I will say, so one caveat when it comes to me for discussing this game is that I missed the middle 60 minutes because I was sitting down in my bed. Um, and right after Calvert-Lewin scored the first goal, I got a phone call um, in which I was told that I'd be moving into my current isolation at the hotel on my school's campus. So this is the first podcast that we've recorded where I've been in isolation. But nonetheless, I got back in time to see the James Rodriguez goal um, that sort of capped things off. I really like their 4-3-3 because James can either play as a winger, he can drift inside. On defense, it sort of becomes more like a 4-4-2. Um, and it kind of preserves James, whose pace has never really been his main attribute. And it lets him you know, find the space that he needs to get into. Some concern, I guess, about Richarlison because he went off injured in the 25th minute, but he did report to Brazil duty today. And allegedly, he's not that badly injured. And, you know, they also made another good signing today in Ben Godfrey from Norwich to give their center backs a little bit more depth as well. And even if you look at their bench, Fabian Delph and Alex Wobie are both versatile and can sort of plug the gaps when needed and for cup competitions. So I think I 
also was very wrong about Everton. I thought things Holy could have gone crap. a lot worse. I just realized something. What? The Merseyside Derby is going to be Jordan Pickford versus Adrian. <laughs> oh, <laughs> in a God. game in which who can <laughs> to see who can drop the net into their own goal or drop the ball into their own net. If <laughs> anyone could figure out how to drop the net, though, it would be one of those two, to be fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is going to be this podcast is the battle to see if Nick can finish the sentence. Well, when was the last time? First. Serious question, though. When was the last time that Everton entered into a side derby? The in favorites? a high, maybe not. Maybe, I don't know if they're going to be the favorites, but in a higher league position than Liverpool. I have no idea. Certainly like not in my lifetime. Yeah. Well, I guess. Yeah. I. I guess the question is: Do we think Everton beat Liverpool? Yes. 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 I, I think, think they win like three. I think they win like three two. I certainly. I mean, I think the question will be if Jurgen Klopp totally abandons the current defensive structure of the team. I think Matip is supposed to be fit. Uh, following the international break. So we'll see if he replaces Joe Gomez. I think he should because Joe Gomez has had a few shockers in a row. Not in a row, but has had a few shockers in the league this season. And 2020 would be the year in which Everton finally get that league win over Liverpool. Uh, Caleb, you were always high on Everton. Perhaps not this high, but what are your thoughts about the Toppies' fortunes going forward? Dude, each week I just feel more vindicated. I, Hamas has taken to the Premier League like very few players have. Honestly, he's having his like Bruno Fernandes moment, except he doesn't need the penalties all the time. I, I've always liked Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I think what's what, what impressed me about this win was how Everton were able to sort of continue to be as dominant while rotating their midfield, giving Tom Davies and Gilfie Sigurdsson some more minutes. Um, I think the question for this team will be kind of like squad depth, but so far they've been able to show that they can kind of manage a burden. I still, I just don't know exactly where this team can finish, but right now they are perfect in the league. They're top of the league. They have an electric offense. And so I think it's hard to root against them right now. You know, I contrast, you know, where they're at right now with where they were at when they played Liverpool in the League Cup last year, right after Ancelotti took over. And the sort of shift that Ancelotti has has brought to this team in terms of attitude and, and sort of ability has been quite immense. And I think a statement win over Liverpool would, I think, consolidate in my mind the sort of truth of this team. And I think that they are set for at least a Europa League place, at least a Europa League place. Time will tell with Everton. I think once the fixtures start to get a little bit more congested, that's where we're going to see whether or not the Coleman, Yerry Mina, Michael Keane backline can really hold up against the large slew of games. This Everton team isn't in Europe this season, so they don't have any anything else to focus on other than improving in the league. And I think that's going to be... Uh, for a team, you know, that might be a little bit thin on depth at the back, that is definitely very beneficial when they only have one competition to focus on. Right. And I think that if they can keep their, in particular, their center midfield trio fit, it'll be a, it'll be a really big boost to them because clearly they've got the pedigree from the managerial level down. Um, and having a player like Hamas, it's almost a shame that he hasn't gotten greeted to the sort of Goodison Park crowd yet because I think they would really, really love him there. Well, I, I think that's the thing, right? The empty arena era of soccer has 
provided these strange training ground preseason friendly type results. And so you wonder like when the fans come back into the stadium, are we going to, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, is all of this excitement temporary or is this actually, you know, the way the game is moving forward? Certainly Aston Villa looked like the more, you know, athletic dynamic team of the future today. But time will tell to see if like these score lines hold once once things return to a sense of normalcy, whenever that is, because I think that's, you know, far and away down the line. But I, I was thinking about the question that you posed, Caleb, about are we going to see, you know, a team rise from the pack and really make, you know, a defiant run at the title? I don't know. Because right now, if you would ask if you ask me like who I think could be consistent for the rest of the season, I would have to say Everton. But then we've just pointed out that they have a few deficiencies in their squad as well. Who knows what Man City are going to look like five weeks from now in terms of their squad? Who knows what the league is going to look like from a COVID perspective and an injury perspective five weeks from now? But especially, you know, during the restart, we were seeing like a lot of negative tests and now we're seeing a few positive tests start to creep up into the league this season. So how is that going to impact teams going forward? Liverpool were without several key players today, as we know. So who's to say that next week, uh, God forbid, you know, a Manchester city or an Arsenal or Chelsea or, you know, even an Everton fall victim to either injuries or COVID. So I think this season is going to be one of complete unpredictability. And maybe for the first time in a long time, we could see, you know, a top four or a title chase comprised of teams like Leicester, Aston Villa, Everton. Shocking, unpredictable season all around could be on the cards. Yeah, I think that if I had to pick a team that was that to win the league right now, my sort of dark horse team would be Leicester. I, I still think City are going to right the ship at some point. Obviously, Liverpool are going to right the ship as well. So I think as Premier League fans, we've sort of grown accustomed to runaway leagues, or runaway, you know, title chases, I guess. I mean, for the past couple of years, it's it's been the Manchester City-Liverpool show. Right. And I think we've we've gotten so accustomed to that that we've forgotten what it was even really like to have four or five teams competing for the Premier League and I think we're definitely going to have that again certainly I don't think any team is going to get you know 90 95 points this season it looks right. like you know every team has a clanger in them and that's fundamentally a good thing because last year's Premier League wasn't that much different from the way we perceive as you know Premier League centric fans the way we perceive the Juventus PSG and Bayern monopolies on their leagues as well, I think. So I think a, a, a very close and competitive league this year will do wonders for uh, the league itself. And I think as fans, we should appreciate that, um, that the Premier League is the kind of league where, in theory, any, not any team, because obviously, we're, you know, Fulham aren't about to go in the league, but, you know, eight to 10 teams could legitimately be in the running for a large portion of this year. Do you think we should give like, quick two sentence takes on Leeds City and Chelsea Palace I feel like or we sure, can, we can do that Nathan yeah. do you want to give your two cents so we're going to do a new segment on corner kick called two se- two sentence takes called running out of time <laughs> called running out of time <laughs> <laughs> um, Nick I want you to play closing time underneath this segment 
Um, I don't know if I can license closing time, but oh, I'll, I'll, do my, I'll do my very best. That's fair. Uh, Two-sentence takeaway on City Leads. My first sentence is as follows. <laughs> it's a little Captain Holt-esque. Um, uh, Dude, you're already at three sentences. Uh, <laughs> sentence Moving on, Nick is done. If, okay, if, nope, 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 you're done. Okay, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> no, Nathan, please. Uh, Leeds need to finish their chances if they want to get into the top half of the table, period. Manchester City need to find some motivation and a way to get by without either of their fit strikers, semicolon. City probably deserved to lose on the day, but managed to salvage a point against a resurgent Leeds team. Um, my two-sentence take on this game is... That was one sentence. <laughs> that was two. <laughs> okay, Wait, okay, on to me. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> this was my favorite game of the season, period. Bielsa's leads need to be more compact and organized in attack if they're going to pull off more scalps like this, period. Rodrigo scored? Question mark, exclamation point. <laughs> If Guardiola wasn't already bald, he would be losing hair at a dramatic rate right now. Uh, and now we'll do the same for Chelsea Palace. Nathan. I think it's taking us longer to come up with these two <laughs> sentences than it is to actually talk about the games. Nope, 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 nope. Nathan. Crystal Palace are destined for 12th place. Chelsea looked good. Jorginho is a penalty merchant, period. Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> your, your two sentence take on this game Werner's still not delivering for me on fantasy Palace seem kind of screwed Ben Chilwell looks well worth the price Frank Lampard is still a fraud and that's our show folks <laughs> Thank you for joining us in this exercise in grammar today. That has been Corner Kick. That has been our show for an absolutely mental weekend of soccer. With We haven't even covered, you know, the mental aspects of the European game this season. You know, we saw Juventus roll up to, to a pitch to play a Napoli team that didn't show up. So we'll definitely, <laughs> and that amongst many other uh, newsworthy stories from this weekend in an absolutely upside down right out of stranger things weekend of soccer um in an episode where liverpool couldn't string a pass together i could barely string a sentence together it seems but that is you know the state that we're currently in um i've been nick vinden caleb broads nathan strauss what a show what a world we live in we will see you all next time <laughs>